0: Oh, man, I love that sound. Do you need a quick boost to get you going? Grab a clean cause, organic, sparkling mate and get your day going with 160 milligrams of caffeine, and it won't cause crashes or jitters like coffee and other energy drinks do. Clean cause is low in calories. It's low in sugar. It comes in five delicious flavors, but here's the best part. Every sip makes a difference in the fight against addiction. Clean Cause donates 50% of net profits to support individuals in recovery from drug and alcohol addiction. Grab a boost, live better, and transform lives. Head on over to cleancause.com and get 20% off your order with promo code SOBERGUY. That's cleancause.com. Enter the promo code SOBERGUY at checkout and save 20%.
1: That Sober Guy podcast contains adult content, merciless truth, and emotional nudity. Listener discretion is advised
0: i'm shane ram here listening to that sober guy podcast and we help people stay sober if it's your first time listening welcome i'm so glad that you're here today you can find more podcasts more resources you can also contact us by going to thatsoberguy.com be sure to follow us on instagram at thatsoberguypodcast all the links from today's show will be in the show notes so they're easy for you to find so excited for our guest today his name is brad mcleod and Brad is the creator of Sober Motivation, a social media and podcast platform that motivates and inspires others while showcasing recovery guests. Uh, he shares a lot of other people's stories on the platform, which is just amazing, bringing so much awareness uh, to recovery and just folks trying to live a better lifestyle, be better fathers, mothers, friends, um, just do great work in their communities. And uh, Brad's also in recovery himself. He's a crazy story. and I I've heard bits and pieces of it but i'm really excited to have him share it with you today on that sober guy podcast so uh without further ado brad it's so great to have you on the show man we've been uh playing you know tag back and forth for some time now and uh finally the schedules met up so really great to have you here today man
1: yeah dude wow that was uh that was an incredible intro there thank you so much man i'm grateful to be here with you to bring some hope to the people
0: yeah Yeah, man. So how long, um, when did you get, when did you get sober? January 11th, 2010. Got it. Okay, man, dude. So you're, uh, so you just hit what, is that 13 years? Yeah. Yeah. Around there. My math is somewhere on, I can still count, I guess. Um, crazy man. And, uh, you're, you're a family man now. I know you've made so many changes in those 13 years. You got a couple of kids, um, and uh, I don't know, where do you want to start? Do you want to you want to just give us a little rundown on, on some of your background? And then, of course, we'll get into sober mas- uh, sober motivation and the work that you're doing today, maybe a little bit later on.
1: Yeah, for sure, man. I was born up here in Canada in 87, to be exact. And um, my mom was 16. She had twins. Mm. My dad was still wanting to, to do his thing. So he wasn't entirely in the picture. I mean, at 16, right? What do you... I guess some people are ready to go. I mean, even in my thirties, but I'm still, you know, I'm still learning about being a father and stuff. Right. So yeah. my grandparents looked after us a lot while my mom went back to school. So she went back to school to be a nurse, finish up high school, all that type stuff. Right. So that was, you know, it was pretty good. I didn't know any different at the time. So yeah, everything was pretty good. When I was about six or seven though, a big thing that happened there was we uh, we ended up moving to Texas. Hmm. So my mom got a job down there at, At a hospital being a nurse and this was like the first time that i was away from my grandparents which like pretty much raised me plus another thing with grandparents is i always like to point this out right grandparents at least my grandparents like saying no wasn't something they frequently did right so you get a lot of stuff and and i don't mean like material stuff but you they're retired you get a lot of attention they're you know more willing to to be there and and to do stuff you want to do right it's i think it's just grandparents so that's what i've always seen so then when i moved my mom my brother and i because i'm a twin and um she's starting this career right nursing got to work overnight so you got to work weekends you got to work here or there we didn't know anybody down there um so it was different right it was different and i think looking back you know i mean that's really when things changed right i started to struggle with anxiety i started to struggle with you know, a different country too. And the cultures are not like extremely different between Canada and in the U S but you know, some things were different for yeah. sure. And, um, you know, working through all of that, right. When you're going to a new school, that was new mm-hmm. and, um, trying to meet new friends and, and do all that stuff. It's hard. It, it was a hard age to kind of start over with because a lot of those people grew up together, maybe in The neighborhoods or they went to preschool and in junior kindergarten. And you know what I mean? They had those relationships and then you,
0: you kind of feel like an outsider almost like in a sense. Yeah, of course. Every day. Yeah. I felt like that. Yeah. Yeah. So
1: that's what the earlier years really. And then we moved there in Texas and I mean, we were good. We lived in a two bedroom apartment. My brother and I shared a room. We had bunk beds. We didn't have, you know, truckloads of cash. We, you know, kind of struggled through it right with that single mom life. And I mean, we knew it. I knew it too. We had, you know, didn't have all the nicest stuff. And yeah, I think that plays a role too, whether, you know, whether we want to admit it or not, I think it played a role, right? I didn't have the fancy stuff. And I didn't know that I consciously understood that at the time, but I think subconsciously, I I obviously had an idea that everybody had kind of different stuff. And it kind of made me feel like more, you know, not part of everything. Yeah. So that was like, you know, growing up, man.
0: How old were you around that time? Like the moving again, when you moved,
1: that was like six or seven in in between there.
0: Okay. Got it. Yeah. So you're just starting to kind of get the, like, you're the little, you're a little dude, you know, trying to make friends. And like, I think about my son, my son's eight right now. So I think about if we picked up and moved somewhere and he didn't know anybody, although he's very resilient and that dude will talk to anybody when you're put into a brand new community, brand new everything. It, I would say it takes at least a year just to like adjust, you know what I mean? Just to get like your, your footing in there. Um, so where, where did it go from there? Did you, you obviously didn't st- end up staying in Texas because you're back in Canada now, but um, how long did you stay in Texas and, and where did it go from there?
1: Yeah. Texas was a couple of years, I think, man. I mean the exact days and years, I don't remember yeah. to a T, but it was for a couple of years. My mom met my stepdad. they They're married now and everything. And, um, they decided they wanted to move to a place with four seasons, right? So Texas, it was, but well, that wasn't, that wasn't the thing. <laughs> yeah. Right. So they moved to a North Carolina. We moved there and that was about like middle, middle school age, um, grade six, grade seven type deal moved up there. Things were good. Like we bought a house. They, they bought a house. I didn't buy, didn't buy it, but they bought a house and it would change things a little bit. I went to this new school, actually, and it was the first year the school was being built. So there was people from all over. So that was like an easier maybe transition, right? But I, I started to struggle with behaviors, right? I was really defiant. I started I started to struggle with focusing in school and I couldn't focus. I was acting out to get attention. I never did well in school. I never, ever really passed the test probably in my entire life um, until I went to college. But I really struggled in school. I was put on... um adderall early that was probably like grade eight i was put on adderall and i was very like outgoing in a sense of like a class clown and all of that stuff not the most productive ways but it was a way to connect with other people Then i took the adderall and i was just introverted like i just couldn't have a conversation with people um i really really struggled i would focus in class and i would stay out of trouble but socially i was not able to really break through and, and meet people or talk to people i just never felt comfortable in my own skin right that's a yeah. common trend yeah for addiction
0: um so yeah that w- well I, let me let me ask you about the adderall r- real quick as somebody as somebody who has personally experienced that um do you think that that helped you or do you think that it made it worse and then um next to that like do you think there that Do you think that there are some times where it's easier for adults, parents, um, even uh, doctors, schools, whatever, just to say, Oh, here you go. Just get on this pill, you know, especially for boys because they're rambunctious. They're got a ton of energy. Um, Where do you kind of, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? Just, just in general. And I know every, I know every like situation is different, so I don't want to sound like it's like, Oh, we're, you know, no, you can't like, you know, It's what do you think? (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely two sides to it because what happened that what happened is I was taking the Adderall, so I struggled with those things, right? Socially. I struggled to fit in. I struggled to have friends or or even really know how to make friendships because I was just so quiet. I was just like that quiet guy. And then one day one day, Shane for the whole Adderall story, one day I forgot to take the medication. This is after a couple of years. Mm. Forgot to take it. And um, I saw things completely different. It, it changed everything. For once, like I felt like I could possibly be a part of something. So what I used to do is pretend not, pretend to take the medication and not take it. And then I created a social life. I became like in high school, I became like this clown, this class clown, right? Everybody thinks funny. I became popular. I fit in with everybody. But the, that, and the downside of that was is there was no boundaries to it. I would push this thing to the limits, push it to the limits, skip class, you know, just kind of act a fool, man, all around. I got, so I was getting suspended from school, in school suspension, out of school suspension. I mean, that was a regular thing for me, getting in trouble on the school bus. I mean, all of that, all that stuff, right? Then at home too, I'm getting in a lot of trouble. So I think, like, I don't know if it was better, or worse, like when I was on it. I was feeling the other way. And when I stopped taking it, but was pretending like I was still taking it, the trouble yeah. just started to pile up. Um, and I got my first, uh, con- uh, first charges uh, like from the police when I was 16.
0: Mm. Were you doing sports? Um, did, did you have any extracurricular stuff that like kept you busy? Um, any, any type of like academic clubs or school clubs or sports, anything like that?
1: Yeah, no, no, no academic clubs. No, I did sports, man. I actually played paintball.
0: Oh, that was a big
1: thing I did. Paintball on the weekends. Um, I played soccer and stuff. But like when I got a little bit older, I didn't really follow through with any more of that stuff. I never played any school sports. I was never involved in any, you know, any extra. Curricular stuff. You know I mean? It was just organized. the, I just did the basic stuff. There yeah. was definitely, you know, no so, extras, man.
0: So what it, the the first time you got in trouble at 16? What, what was that about?
1: That was garage hopping, man. I mean, I, I, you know, all my trouble I got in over the years, 80% of it was just trying to fit in, just trying to belong, just trying to be part of something, you know? Yeah. And I was kind of like the guy that it, I was extremely impulsive. That was the thing when I got off the Adderall by the impulse, the impulse yeah. it was just crazy. And I'd been going to doctors, psychiatrists, therapists, lear- learning centers, counselors, everything since ever since I could remember, man. Since yeah. I was young, I had been seeing people that were trying to support me to, you know, it was like just to get in line, man, to get yeah. in line and just do what I needed to do. And I mean, I just didn't, I just never did. I never followed, I never followed the rules, you know. And that carried yeah. over to the house, right? Because you know, my parents are great people. They wanted me to do well in school and I never did well in school. And I just felt yeah. like a loser because all my peers are celebrating their their exams and their scores. And like, I would just leave halfway through and just not even finish it. Like I just was so full of anxiety and impulse. I'd rather just go shoot hoops at the community center. So I would just pack up the final exam of the entire school year in grade <sighs> 10. I would just turn it in and it was blank. And uh, I mean, you know, you're, you're, my folks, they wanted to see me do well, but then that would cause friction for them, right? Because yeah. they were like, "You have to do something, like at least finish the test, whether you know the answers or not." At least, and and we couldn't really understand the disconnect there about why I couldn't get that together. So the first time I got arrested, I got caught garage hopping. Man, the story with with that was we we had taken some golf clubs and we had a buddy of mine. We had stolen a bat from a store to Dick Sporting Goods. And uh, the, the the golf clubs that weren't good, we decided to throw behind my parents' house. Mm-hmm. So then the cops caught us on camera selling the bath to play it against sports. Came to my <laughs> parents' place, looked around the yard, found all the golf clubs, and I mean, it, the case was just building, right?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, we were by no means innocent for for that, right? So that's sixteen, man. I'm charged with felonies, right? I had no idea going into someone's garage was a felony charge.
0: Yeah. His garage kind of like, was
1: open. You know, that was my thinking.
0: It was kind of like dumb kid stuff like in a sense you know just messing around yeah, probably not really thinking a lot about it and yeah and then all of a sudden you get hit with a potential felony and you're like what's that <laughs> you know hey what, one yeah. thing one thing i wanted to point out to real quick before we before we go on oh my my cat's going crazy there got a cat we're crazy cat people now our dog died in december and all of a sudden we have two cats now it's great jose Canseco oh. and ruby um in any case sorry um, the feeling to be, uh, included and, and be, uh, wanted and like part part of the crew, like part of something, like part of a community, a group of friends, whatever. Um, I fast forward and I think about sober motivation and like, I mean, I'm sure you're aware you have a pretty large platform on social media. The podcast is growing. Um, do you ever, do you ever think like tie those two together that like, out of that deep, like need to feel that as a young man, like now you're able to give back and give people who feel like misfits and feel not wanted and feel like they failed or, um, you know, they're having a hard time in life. They have this place now that they can go and share and they can be themselves and they can, um, be a part of something. I I think that's really cool.
1: Yeah. I mean, for sure. I, I think when I started it too, there was like this, this vision anyway, it didn't start where it is now. Obviously it's the, I started with one follower and I think that was my wife. But, <laughs> um, and now we have over, we, we probably have close to a million followers, um, uh, between Instagram and Facebook and some other platforms. So I never expected that. That's another thing. But I, I love to give people a voice and because I think yeah. a big part of my struggles early on is I never felt heard. Like, it didn't matter because I didn't feel heard because I wasn't checking off all the other boxes. Well, why would we listen to you? Because you're not doing well in school. Why would we listen to you? Because you've been suspended from school 10 times. You you skip class. You run away from home. I mean, you can't the way the feedback I got from the world was like, you can't even do the basic stuff. So it doesn't matter what you, you think or what you feel. If you can't get this stuff down, it's just not relevant because you have to go to college I got a job and a career and you have to do well in school and you have to do all these things and you, you suck at it. You yeah. Know what I mean, that was, that was what I got. So that was one of the, you know, one of the things I, I really had a vision for is like, you know, let's give people a voice yeah. to share their story, you know, about what things look like and what they're like now.
0: Do you, do you like to share that too? That, cause I'm, I'm with you on that same page. Like we, we were really, uh, and continue to be depending on who you ask or who you listen to or what you you know read or watch or whatever, there's this general conditioning that like, that's what you're supposed to do. You need to, you know, get great grades and you need to go off to college and get in all this college debt and then get out and find a job and like, and then buy the house and do the whole thing. And I, even myself, we're all guilty of it to some extent, I think in falling into that at some point in our lives. But like for my wife and I, like, we've we've really changed the trajectory like of our kids life like we're i'm not and i'm not saying like don't go to college if that opportunity presents itself but like i am saying don't go to college and go get in a bunch of debt to get out and not even be able to find the job later on because you got stuck in that trap like we're kind of teaching them about history and entrepreneurship and thinking outside of the box. And, um, you know what I'm saying? So like, I, do you, is that something yeah. that you kind of relate to, um, in the path that you've taken? Or do you talk about that stuff with your kids or what's your take on that?
1: Yeah. I mean, for sure. I just think the, uh, I was just trying to be put into a box that I was just never going to fit yeah, in.
0: Exactly. And so many people like that.
1: Yeah. And the box just wasn't going to change. Because the the box is going to be great for 80% of people, but for the 20 that are really going to struggle in it, they're not going to change the rest of it. And that's kind of what, you know, looking back, I, yeah. Shane, I had no idea of this at the time. You know oh, what yeah, I mean? Totally. I mean, this is all, I'd say 2020, right? But I just wasn't able to to figure it out. I just was not able to to put this together and I had absolutely no interest in reading books and I had no interest in, in doing math and I never did it. I never, in high school, I never read a book, not one book. Yeah, I, ne- I had no interest in sit down read a book. I got the cliff notes a couple of times for projects Yeah, and I don't even know if I'd read that, man. Honestly, I, I can't remember even putting that. I think my mom would try to help me out with it. You know, and that caused so much friction though at home, right, when I look back, it's like that piece there caused, so many problems between my folks and I, Yeah, you know, because it was, everybody was scratching their head. Like, what is he not getting this for? You know, when I look back, it's like, (laughs) I still, I still couldn't get it today, even if I was put in that situation. So, I mean, for sure, I think that, you know, there's different things people can do, but I mean, just overall encouraging people that if you're, if there's a lot of resistance with where you're headed, like maybe it's just not where you're meant to be headed. Yeah. And it's okay to not like be part of the the pack. See, now i see that at the time i felt a lot of shame and a lot of guilt that i just couldn't figure this out you know why can't i be like everybody else you know that's what i used yeah. to go to sleep and wake up thinking like if i can't be like everybody else and i used to struggle with with suicidal thoughts too and i said well if i can't be like everybody else well then, then what the fuck's the point of doing it at all yeah mm. you know so it got deep man it, you know that sort of thing it, it really, really. I got hung up on it for a
0: while. Um, man. Yeah. So if you, uh, so after you get in a little bit of trouble for the first time, the garage hopping, um, Mm -hmm. like where does it go from there? How do you end up from, you know, what happens between that time and then just being a hundred percent addicted to drugs and living a life that you never probably thought you would be living. (laughs) yeah no great
1: question so the thing after i got to, when i was 16 right so i'm brought into the at 16 in north carolina you be chart you can be charged as an, an adult mm. so i'm brought into the big jail and i'm sitting and this was kind of a pivotal b- moment where i where i committed wholeheartedly that i was going to change my life shane oh, man. i was just convinced that i was going to change. i was going to start listening to my parents because i knew if i listened to my folks they're, they're incredible people i would be i would do well <laughs> So I go into this jail cell, right? I'm picturing like the movies, right? The bars everywhere. There's no bars. It's like panes of glass. And I go in there and they, they book. You have to be booked in. And um, they put me in this cell. It's about a 10 by 10. There's a fella in there and he's just sobbing. He's sobbing. And I'm like, oh, that's, you know, it's kind of strange. Me, naive, young. I'm like, hey, what's going on, buddy? And he tells me. And he's been picked up for, for, um, potentially murdering his girlfriend in, Nor- in New York city. And he was catching the train system down trying to go to Florida. That's what he, that's what wow. he told me. And yeah. I was like, Oh my God, you know, and, and I'm like, well, I've never been in a spot like this, this is a scary spot because there's nobody like hanging out or watching you or there to like save your butt. If things <laughs> yeah. hit the fan for a few minutes, there's not, yeah. there's none of that. And I figured that out too, pretty quick. Like they locked the door and they're gone. Yeah. And, um, Man, I swore after that, dude. I was in there for a couple hours, right? And then my parents bailed me out. They got a I saw the judge in there. They set a bond, five thousand dollars. My parents bailed me out. I got out of there. I walk out of the front of the the jail downtown. And um I told my mom, I said, My gosh, I said, I really messed up, you know. My mom's like, Yeah, you you know, you did. I said, Look, I'm changing everything. You know, I'm changing my friends, I'm changing I'm changing literally everything, you know, down to my underwear and socks. And um, it's so wild how quickly that just just disappears. Mm, you know, a couple wow. of days later, I was back at the same stuff acting up. So that was a big thing, man. I got put on felony probation for that. I couldn't I couldn't uh, show up to school, though. So then at my probation officer at the time, I used to have to do drug tests, you know, and this might have been one thing that saved my life. Well, maybe not save my life, but save me. I wasn't even doing drugs at this time, drinking beer nothing. I wasn't a cool kid. So there was no beer. There was no weed. there were, You know, it wasn't. Yeah. They yeah. so weren't inviting the, me to, to doing it, right? So um, I get drug tested, but I couldn't show up to class. I kept skipping class and um, I got violated for the probation and they wanted me to do five go weekends and stuff. I had parents had to hire another lawyer. All this stuff's really expensive, but it didn't end up playing out. So then- after that, man, things have progressively got worse. Right? The probation officer saw my case all the time. Coming to the school, you know, with the with the jacket and the sidearm. It's extremely embarrassing. This is for a year. Yeah. The problems at home are getting heavier. Um, the therapy I was supposed to be going to, I'm not going consistently. I'm not thinking, doing what I'm supposed to do. Um, and then I had this girlfriend. It was a codependent relationship, and just to run through this quick, it was really bad. And when we break up, like I would get really suicidal way I was thinking. And I would communicate this to this counselor at school. The first time I went to the psycho psych ward, that's what we called it then. I, I don't know if there's yeah. a different name now, but I went, got checked into UNC Chapel Hill psych ward. After a couple of days, I was out next time this happened was a month, a couple months in between next time I went back and things in my life were just completely out of control. And every, every single area. I mean, if you look at, you know, five, six areas, it was completely out of control. Yeah. And um, I was headed nowhere fast. So my parents did a little bit exploring. They said, hey, do you want to go to a behavioral treatment program um, and get some help for this stuff? And I said, no, of course not. Who would want to do that? 17, 16, yeah. 17 years old. Um, so I stay in this place. I stay in the hospital a little bit longer. They take my shoes after about the fourth day. They said "You're a flight risk, a flight risk for what? I mean, it was just hanging out. It wasn't that bad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then my parents had this guy come in and do an interview with me. He had a three month program. There was a three month program, and it was like 90 minutes down the road from where I lived. And, uh, but you had to voluntarily want to go. And I was like, no, because I'm just defiant by nature, I just don't follow rules. I, that's just who Nobody I want to be told time.
0: what to do. Yeah, I totally. Even my eight year old's like that. He's like, he just told my wife uh, today, I'm tired of you telling me what to do. I'm like, dude, you're eight. Like, come on, bro. So, yeah, it's just. My five year old does
1: that. <laughs> yeah, anyway, sorry. Man. Yeah,
0: go ahead, man. That's
1: okay. We're in trouble. <laughs> yeah, I know. Um, yeah, so then, so then, then I wake up a couple of days later and I get this kick on the bed, right? It's a metal bed. and You got your little mattress on top of it, a big kick. And I look up and it's this guy, big, big fella. You know what I mean? Like yeah. ripped, ripped guy. And I'm like, oh, this is, this guy doesn't work here. Cause the, the psych ward, it was nurses and doctors, you know, yeah. it's mostly not that size. And, um, there was a female with them too. And they said, yeah, we're a transport. We're going to bring you to this treatment program.
0: Mm.
1: I said, oh, okay. Well, I'd never heard about it, so I don't know about it, but. Me going back and forth with them, I had—I already knew I had to go to this program, right? And um, man, yeah. what have I done my entire life? I run impulsively, run physically, mentally from situations. I try to escape situations that are uncomfortable. I can't deal with it. I can't manage it. So as soon as I got down in the parking garage of the hospital, I started to plan my escape um, from these transporters that my parents hired. They were bringing me to this program in Tennessee called Peninsula Village. That's all I knew um so for lo- another long story short we stop at a rest stop and then they pull up like i have to go to the bathroom so this is my plan and then i just and we came out of the bathroom he's holding the back of my shorts pair of gym shorts then i just split gone and um i don't know what i was doing man i was like way out in the middle of nowhere off i uh, i-85 or something <laughs> And um it was like three hours later I was on the run and I was on probation at this time. Yeah. This could have been in serious trouble with her. So then like three hours later I ran through a, a a bee's nest, man, and they just swarmed me. And I was in so much pain. And when on the side of the interstate, they have those uh fences, the like a chicken wire fence. I hit yeah. that full speed, and just flipped over it. The adrenaline was just rolling. Wow. And um like three hours later, the the police ended up catching me. So they had called in the police, you know, just my situation coming from the hospital and stuff. I'm sure they they dispatched a lot of police officers. And when they took me back to the rest stop, they had a command state, you know, command like it was serious. And I was just like, I don't know, man. I was like, all right, well, I'm not getting away from the treatment center. So but they handcuffed me. The nice guy stuff was over. They brought me to Peninsula Village. This was a 12 month program, lockdown unit. I was locked in a basement for four months. You weren't allowed to talk, use the washroom, Damn. get up, anything without permission. You had to raise your hand and get permission. You could be at 90 seconds to go pee. Um, I don't know, three minutes to do the other thing. Everything was timed. Your showers were seven minutes. You had chores. You had a couple groups. You'd have like a AA meeting, um, fellowship meeting once per week. And um, you lived down in this basement, man, and every everything was controlled. It was a break you down, build you up program. And then after that, you would go into a cabin program. I graduated into a cabin program, but I heard something there that would actually change my life because I'm just defiant. I don't, just don't follow rules. Yeah. So I don't talk to my parents, but once a week over the phone with a family therapist. And I'm just, I'm, you can imagine what my feelings are towards them. They've plucked me from my life that I thought I was living, and now I'm living in a basement outside of knoxville tennessee off jones bend road getting told when i can go pee and when i can have a shower and that i have to be quiet all day and no books no distractions sitting on a bed bunk um it was it was wild and um after about three months in this basement they called it stew special treatment unit the staff had little buzzers around their neck they would hit that buzzer if there was a restraint it would sound off sirens throughout the campus they'd restrain the, the teenagers um if you were misbehaving or whatever And um, this guy there, Mr. Riddle. So we called him Mr. Riddle. And um, they never got personal with you. Never did personal, no counseling, no coaching, nothing. It was just there to basically enforce
0: them. No no connection, in other words.
1: No, no, no connection. I got to say, it sounds
0: terrible. It sounds absolutely terrible. (laughs) Like, (laughs) wow.
1: It's not there anymore that I know of. I think it's another place now, but different structure. Yeah. But, yeah, so he told me something – and I wasn't listening, right? So you had to follow the basic rules to get out of the special treatment unit at, up to the cabin program, where you lived in the woods with your group, and you guys did different stuff, went to school, and everything else. And I'm, I just wasn't following the rule. I just didn't care. I'm like, whatever, you know, it is what it is. And um, he told me, he said, "Brad, you got to fake it till you make it." I had no idea what this meant. Fake it till you make it. Next day, it clicked. And the next, from the, from that day on, I did everything and said everything w- what they wanted to hear. I stopped with the no. thing, my way, crap, what I wanted to do. And I just started to play the game. Yeah. And um, a couple weeks later, I was in the cabin program. And um, it was an incredible thing. Man, I spent another, I don't know, eight months in the cabin program. I reached a level to, of the the treatment center that maybe one person a year does. And there's probably 100, 200 people that go through it a year. Um, I was a level of the Eagle. You started out as a pre mouse, then you moved to a mouse, then a bear, then an Eagle Eagle. I could go through all the levels, what the symbol, but I'll just share the Eagle Eagle is being able to see the bigger picture. So kind of soars above, right? Sees more than what's just in front of you. So that was pretty cool. And then the program where I was locked down, by the time I reached that level, I was able to walk the campus freely. It was probably a four or five mile campus. You could walk it freely and, um, build a lot of trust. So, yeah. Now, when I leave the pro, any well, how, questions? How old are yeah, well, how,
0: yeah, because that, that's um, that's pretty incredible. I haven't heard of a, a place like that. First of all, I didn't know that that was something that you know that, that whole, the whole program. I mean, I'm sure there's much more to it. You just kind of dropped it in just a couple of minutes. But um, how old were you at that time? Seventeen. Seventeen. So you're you're not even legally an adult yet, and you've already done about a year in in the program itself. And then you 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 make it through the program, and then you you graduate or you get out of the program. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So okay. So cool. so cool. Just keep keep going, man. Because I could. Yeah. I want to. What happens next? <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. So then I get out of this program, and I'm in. I get a. I finished high school. I never probably would have finished traditional high school, but. I graduated high school at this place. Built a you know incredible relationship with my parents. Never held never held it against them for plucking me from my life. After that, you know, I was able to see that like I was just causing massive destruction and the way I was headed. You know, I always had the idea that one day I'll just turn it off. You know, one day I'll just decide to turn off the dysfunction and and I'll, I'll, the trauma will go away and. And I'll just find my way. And it was just so naive, you know? And that's yeah. what my folks were mentioning to me about, like, hey, why this decision? It was a very hard decision for them to make. But why this is one is because they had been, you know, I mean, they were going to their own counselors and therapists and stuff and, you know, getting the same messages like this type of stuff doesn't usually just flip off like the seasons change. You know, this stuff needs um, serious measures to to if we're going to get a chance at changing this right so i get out of the program i apply for college man i get into college i get my own place i get my my uh, my first job you know I, i'm i got my first job um i'm dating this girl that i knew before um that was like good she's a credible human just like wow you know what like yeah. what could i have possibly done type deal right like um and i'm doing good man i'm all i'm, I'm going to my therapy i'm going to uh, my fellowship groups you know getting support from people I'm going to the groups that the treatment centers putting on. I'm staying in contact with my folks. I'm leaning into support. But like, I'm doing everything gravy. I brought it from the from the program. Yeah. Until I uh, until I had a handle on things. I had a handle. I I had it figured out. I had a beat chain. Mm-hmm. I had a beat. I had everything beat. And I wasn't even doing drugs or drinking at this time. This was this was all setting me up to find an escape somewhere. You know, this was a life I had to escape from. Um, and a lot of people are like, oh, well why'd you go to this treatment and all this stuff? I said, Well, I just hadn't picked up yet. Yeah. I mean, I was I was headed on a one-way road to find a an escape somewhere. I just hadn't had the opportunity yet.
0: Um, what, what do you what do you think you're so, escaping from? Like if you if you look back now, and I know like you said, it's hindsight, but like in that time, were you just escaping from not feeling connected or was there does it yeah. sound like there was something so sp- specific? Your parents are great. Like what, what was it? Yeah,
1: I never felt like I was valued, you know, by the world, not necessarily by my folks. I couldn't feel it from my folks. My folks yeah. saw, loved me, but I wasn't able to accept it. I was more interested when I was a teenager for, for my peers to accept me. And I felt like yeah. some did, but the majority didn't. You know, and I think there was trauma, too, when I made that big move and my grandparents were kind of out of my life and I was bullied, too. I mean, I was bullied, too, um, for stuff. And, um, you know, not always directly bullied, but maybe indirectly, too, like, hey, pick a partner in gym class and I'm the guy with the teacher every time. You know what I mean? Stuff like that,
0: Yeah.
1: where I don't know that that was like people's intentions, but I just internalized this stuff. I was very sensitive. Yeah. To things, right? And in the whole school thing to where it was like, shit, man. Like, why can't you figure this stuff out? Constantly beating myself up. I was my own worst enemy. I had terrible anxiety, depression, um, the suicidal thoughts. I never felt good enough. I never, you know, I could never tell you a time where I was like, yeah, I was like, I was at peace. It was constant um, battle between my ears that I never, the, the problem this went on for so long, Shane is I never shared it with anyone, mm. I never talked. I never talked to anybody. I had plenty of, like I told before, I had I, I, therapists, counselors, psychiatrists, psychologists, doctors, everything you name it. Every every intervention under the sun, yeah. obviously happened before my parents spent two hundred thousand dollars sending me to this specialty program for the extreme of the extreme. And I never shared it with anybody because I was just worried that I would get the same feedback as like, yeah. who cares? Just get on board. And I was like, dude, I've tried to get on board. I can't do it. Yeah. You know? So that was like the battle, man. Ho- hopefully that answers the question. It does.
0: You know, it does. And it's just, it's, it's really sad, man. Like I, <laughs> I don't know how the others say, but like, it's, it's sad to think of, like little Brad out there going through that and and not just you as like, this is your testimony, your experience, but like how many other little Brads are there out there going through the same stuff um, that, you know, that don't know how to communicate that. And it just, it just, it kind of breaks my heart to be honest, man. But um, in any case, um, I guess God puts us in situations for certain reasons. I do believe that. And like today you're here sharing your story and you're doing amazing work to move on and, and hopefully, um, bring awareness and, uh, conversation and, you know, um, help and help people understand that kind of stuff. So just, I guess, thank you for, for doing what you do, man. And it, it gives a little context, I think to, or for me, a little more context to your whole platform um, with sober motivation too. And I just, I think it's even cooler than I already thought it was. So um, anyways, yeah, go go ahead, man. <laughs> yeah.
1: All right. Are we, are we ending
0: there, Shane? Let's, oh, uh, what do, what do we got? Third, third, no, yeah, we're, we're good, man. I want to hear, we haven't even gotten okay. to the drug stuff yet. Like what the,
1: I know, <laughs> I know. What are we doing, man? No, uh, how great. can so many things go great. wrong without drugs and alcohol? I know. Involved. It's
0: actually pretty incredible. Yeah. So go, go ahead, man. Take it away.
1: Yeah. So then I got, Yeah. So then I got out of the rehab and everything was good, man. And then, and then I was, uh, I stopped doing all my supports. I stopped doing all my stuff. I started to feel really good. And I I stopped slowly going to stuff, you know, and it wasn't necessarily this conscious thing, but I started to make excuses like, well, I want to hang out with my buddies. I want to do this and I'll just do that therapy appointment next week. Or I'll just do this next week. I'll do it there. And then, you know, the farther you get away from stuff, yeah, easier it is to just say ah forget about it right like it's much easier so that's what happened man and then i got introduced to i had my own place right and the thing with this girlfriend fell apart and i had a buddy move in Another good dude everybody involved with my life 92 percent of them were actually really good people um that didn't have problems with substance use or or like getting in trouble with law they were good people but we he, he was like he liked to have his beer, right? So he was a big party animal. This guy was like the most popular college kid in the world. I mean, he had he had access to every party every night, hmm. and I and I wanted to belong. So that's what I did, man. So we started drinking beers and stuff. You know, and at first, buddy, it wasn't a big deal. Yeah. It wasn't really a big deal. Um, we would go out party every night. I mean, I had a tr- I had trouble interacting with people. So I mean, the alcohol was definitely serving a purpose for me. You know, I mean, it would it would it would settle me down. I'd be able to talk with girls and do, you know, all that type yeah. stuff and fit in and be, you know, feel like I was a part of something. Right. But I had a buddy over. We we're playing poker one night, had a couple buddies over. I was working at this restaurant. Right. Everybody who's been part of the restaurants. I mean, you know, that for, for a lot of them, it's probably not I'm going to throw a general statement out there. But there's drinking and drugs that anyone I worked at, it's available. Not everybody was doing it, but it was available. So buddy comes over and he's got this pill bottle. And I'm playing we're playing poker. And I had never even knew about this stuff before, Shane. And he's taking this pill. And I said, What are you doing? Like taking a towel? We're playing cards, drinking beer and stuff. Like, what do you need? To, like, why don't you just head home or something? And he's like, No, it's a Percocet. I said, Oh, Percocet. Never heard of Percocet before. I said, What does it do for you? He said, Oh, I just feel like you're floating. Floating. I said, Oh, okay. Well, what's it what's it cost? Five bucks. I was like, all right, let's try, you know, let's get it, man. I'm already drinking the beers. What could be the worst, right? What could yeah. be the worst thing that happens here, buddy? And I I everything I had been looking for my entire life, the way a way of feeling, not feeling what I was feeling like came true for five five dollars, Shane. I couldn't wrap my head around it. I mean, every problem I had in my head and everything growing up was gone for five bucks. I had experienced this before when I worked at, when I went to that treatment center and I graduated and I felt like I was on top of the world and I was going into college and everything. But but I had to work one year. I had to work for an entire year every day to experience that. This just seems so much easier, right? Yeah, few bucks, immediate. Um, And that would kind of take me down the road, man. Of you know, I I linked up soon after that. I had I started to figure out how I was going to get more, right? How am I going to get more of these? I knew somebody whose mom had a bunch of surgeries. I did a Google search. Well, how do you even get these things? Get them from the store? Right? Surgery, right? You have surgery. Get them prescribed from a doctor. So I got I kind of convinced this person into um, to getting a shoebox full of them.
0: Oh, wow!
1: And um, I I was taking those pills. I I was naive, man. I had no idea what this was. I thought, you know, I would just take this shoebox, couple hundred pills, and like my life would go on, right? And this would be another season, Mm. and and move on. And I didn't know about withdrawal. I didn't know about becoming addicted. I didn't know about you know getting sick if you don't have them or restless legs or you know any of that stuff. Um, so that's how it started with the pills, man. Mm.
0: How many were you taking? A day when you got to like the, yeah, towards the end of it, like at your max.
1: Yeah. I mean, I would take like sometimes I would take 10 or 20 Percocets in one sitting. I mean, this is towards the end, the end before yeah. I got into heroin. And I would throw them all up, dude. Mm. Mm. Take 20, you know, and my stomach was just by the end of it, right? You're taking this stuff. It's got so much all in it. At least that's what I was told. And um, yeah. I was taking so many, buddy, and just throwing them up. I was in a panic. I mean, I was doing stuff. I'm not going to get into all the stuff I yeah. did, but you know what I mean. That's bad, right? When that's your supply. Oh yeah. And and you know that the withdrawals are going to set in, and you can't. You don't have any more more money. But the shoebox thing, I, I, that lasted me for about a month and a half, man. And I remember one day I was driving, i had taken so many, and I was driving into school, and I used to drive into college. This it was a one way road, um, and then there was this light like halfway down it. And I passed out in my car at this light, this red light. Yeah. And I was doing cocaine too. I was doing cocaine too. So I'd stay up all night and then I would do the, take the, uh, the pills to try to function the next day. And um, buddy I used to, buddy I worked with, wow. he was like, dude, I saw your car. It was parked at the red light. And um, I was honking and honking and honking and honking. And um, I said, dude, I didn't hear anything. And it ended up what happened is a fire truck and an ambulance came behind me. Oh, and the wow. firefighter opened up my door and it woke me up. And this was a really busy intersection. Like, if my foot would have slipped off that brake, I would yeah. have probably been dead. Wow. But it was so weird to me how my foot stayed on the brake. Like, this could have been yeah. for a fire truck to get there, it could have been 15, 20 minutes. This yeah. is in the middle of nowhere. And, um, I was like, then I was like, well, I got to have a look at something, you know, maybe I need to make some changes, but I never did, man. I never did. I kept running with it. The pills got too expensive. They dried up. This is when everything was kind of coming out. Um,
0: is that And what then led I talked you, to my body. Is that what led you to heroin? I was going to say, is that what kind of led? Yeah, you man. Because yeah, heroin's that's what, cheaper and.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Re- more available. I mean, you could go and you could pick it up anywhere and. um at the time that I'm living in North Carolina. So yeah, I mean, it was, bu- it was busy and that's what everybody I knew was switching over to, hmm. you know, where everybody was switching over to that because the prescriptions of the people we used to get them from, this stuff was drying up or was just becoming too expensive. So, yeah. I mean, you could get equivalent, you know, for a hundred dollars of pills, you could get, you know, you could get heroin. that would be like a thousand dollars of equivalents, you know? So, and I still, yet again, man, I had no idea what I was getting into. I had yeah. absolutely no idea um, where that was going to take me.
0: Yeah, it's it is it's crazy to think about that. Like when when you think about to the earlier part of your story, like in your teens, like yeah, you know, having issues, paying attention, and trying to be accepted. Like you never wake up or start your day off and go, "Wow, one day I'm I'm going to be addicted to heroin," and you know, really. Just destroying my life, you know, and not not even really knowing at the same time, too. I I think it's interesting that like that you you didn't have any like really idea um, of what the full like consequences of that lifestyle could be. You just kind of just went with it. And so I mean, what so what happened? What once you once you started down that path?
1: Yeah, I mean, once I got on the heroin, I used to run with a buddy of mine. And then I I started to really feel the withdrawals, right? And I was still like a little bit unsure because I had such a heavy supply for a bit, the withdrawals. If I had them, I could usually find a way to get stuff. And, um, man, I remember sitting in it. I remember, well, we were driving my girlfriend's car at the time. Like, tell me how bad of an idea this was. Girlfriend's car at the time. He's got to drive, though, because he knows the dealer. So we go to like the projects of uh, Durham, North Carolina. We go in the projects and we drive. That was like how we did the deal, right? The guy drives by, you drive, you know, on the street. It was the strangest thing. But um, I remember waiting, right? I called him up. I said, hey, you know, so-and-so, I need to, like, I'm feeling my legs are shaking, dude. I'm getting really hot. Like, what, you know, is this something to do with what we're doing? He said, oh, yeah, like, this nonchalant. This was a seasoned veteran. And he just said, nonchalant. Yes, it's raw. I said, all right, well, what do we do about it? He's like, oh, yeah, I got to get more. I said, okay, well, then let's get some more. And um, he would call Buddy. The thing with Buddy was is that, uh, I mean, you usually wait about three, four hours. This is the madness of the whole thing. So we go and we're waiting at the Sheets gas station, right? Buddy's like, I'll take a milkshake. Get me a milkshake. Okay. Got a milk. Like three hours later, it's just dust. (laughs) It's gone. I'm like, why does he want a milkshake? There's nothing to it. Yeah. It ne- never made Shane, It never made sense to me. Yeah. Um, but we we're waiting there for three, four hours, you know what I mean? And and I'm just thinking this whole time, like, like, this is you know, it's madness, man. I'm yeah. thinking, like, yo, know, the right thing is I should probably just call this quits while I'm ahead. But you just want that relief, man. You know, you just want that. That and that's the secondary part to it, at least for me. It had its initial purpose, but then you get hooked, you know, so then it's not even about belonging. And then it wasn't even about fitting in. And then it wasn't about all that shit. It was about, well, I'm addicted to this stuff, physically addicted to this stuff, mentally addicted. And if I don't have it, it consumes every thought and every move I make, you know, so that's where I. I got stuck, but I, I, I remember that thing, you know, and then we would go on to buy many, many milkshakes, Shane, that just wasted away, um, over, over time. And I never, I never understood it. And I, I never will. And I got arrested when I was like a later stage of 18, I got arrested again, man. Um, this time for cars, car hopping. Um, it's a little like a long story, but I got another felony charge. That's a felony in North Carolina. Going in someone's car. And I didn't even go in the car. I learned another hard lesson here. This is not like a saying I'm not guilty of this, but I learned a guilty by association. So if you're with somebody who does something, you know, you're good. You're yeah. you're you're it's the same deal. So yeah. I was with a buddy. That's what he did. I knew what he was doing. I'm not saying I didn't. I I was well aware we what we were doing was wrong. Um and my, I, we went on the run actually from the police. They came, it was like four in the morning and they came firing up the street and I saw the blue, blue lights and we split and we ended up at this pool where they had a phone cause we did not have any phones, um, cell phones yeah. or anything. And I called my, I called my girlfriend, right? This chick I was dating. And I mentioned her before she was incredible human. I mean, never even stepped on an ant before. And I call her and I'm like, yeah, me and so-and-so like we're at this pool. And she's like, what do you mean? It's four in the morning, but she would always, you know, enable, help me out, you know, kindness out of her, the kindness of her heart, but it was extremely enabling. And I th- talked with her, you know, years later. And it's like, yeah, I mean, we did the best we could with what we had, mm-hmm. but um, she picked us up and we're at it. We're almost out of this town, Shane. I mean, I could see the sign for the next town and the lights turn on and I'm like, oh man, you know, and then uh, yeah, we got arrested for this. This, this was my first felony charge. I had to, I, I didn't have to, but I pled guilty to this felony to avoid jail time. They wanted me to go to jail for a year um, for this. So then I got put on felony probation again. I told them it was for credit card debt. And for some strange reason, they bought that story. And they didn't drug test me this time when I was put on adult probation. But when I was 16, they did. Um, But that was a whole nother thing because probation costs money. I had no money. So this was sort of the time where I started to lose stuff, right? The job I lost a job. Um, I was doing Xanax too. So I was blacking out. I went to this job and blacked out and I was a good employee. You know, I was a good person like 80% of the time, but like 20% of the time I was a shit person and, and I just made really poor decisions. And, yeah. um, and it, there were consequences for those decisions. Um, so the the using started to get bad. I was just doing whatever, man, whatever I could do to kind of escape myself and eventually everything started to leave and like just for time's sake, we'll skip forward a bit, man. I found myself I lost a girl. Um I lost the girl. I lost the house. I lost the relationship with my parents, with my friends, with everybody, man. I was just not a person that people wanted to um hold on. I was just not a person that people wanted to hang out with. Um, All I did was partied, man. I would wake up in the morning and get a 24 Keystone light and I would hang out at my brother's pool and I would just get smashed on Keystone light, you know, for those like 10 bucks, 11 bucks from Walgreens. (laughs) I get the two for one deal of Marlboro's, right? You buy the Marlboro menthols then and you got two packs for the price of one. I mean, it was I thought like that's the greatest gift food lion ever gave anybody so,
0: yeah and i so um, excited to drink beer and smoke cigarettes all day huh
1: <laughs> yeah and then and then yeah. do the other stuff too yeah. um so i mean it was terrible so at the end of it man i was on methadone so that's why i was drinking the beer and the cigarettes at that time because i was on methadone and i didn't really need to but the methadone posed another big problem because i had no car no place to live nothing and my brother would let me use his car, but I'd have to drive 30 minutes each way every day to the methadone clinic. And it cost 12 bucks a day for the methadone if you don't want to feel like deathly ill. So my parents used to let me work in their yard, but to work in their yard, I'd have to walk about four hours. And I could work in their yard for $10 per hour. So I would do that for and do two, to, two hours per day or sometimes maybe three or four and get a couple of days. The methadone, because everything else in my life was falling apart. There was no treatment. There was no rehab. It was great. It got me off the street level stuff, but I was the same person yeah. that I was before. Um, so I ended up in my brother's apartment. He had a two-bedroom apartment. He had a roommate. I lived on the couch slash his bedroom floor. He was embarrassed to have me around while he had people over. So that's when I would live on the floor if he had people over from uh, work or wherever, and they would be you know doing their, their normal um, partying stuff which I just couldn't seem to to ever do. Um, and then I would sleep on his floor. And um, I had this sort of uh, uh, spiritual experience one morning. I woke up on his floor. The sun was just kind of baking, hit me right in the face. He was gone to work. And I used to put on Dexter for some reason. And we I'd listen to Dexter while I fell asleep. I couldn't stand my own thoughts. So I would listen to Dexter. It's a dark sort of show. I don't know as well. Yeah. I know why, because it's the only show I had. It's the only DVD I had. We yeah. didn't have cable. And I woke up that morning, man, and I, I kind of had this realization and this this dialogue with myself that this shit's either going to kill me, I'm going to do it, like I'm going to have to take myself out, or I'm going to try to get friggin' sober. And I had no idea what the heck that meant. Mm-hmm. You know, I had no idea what that meant for for me. I had absolutely nothing at this point. And I mean, I could paint more of a picture, but hopefully, we get it here. There was nothing left. Yeah. Um. There was no more dreams to sell. I had. You know, okay. cashed them all out of me getting help and getting support and, and doing everything. So I had these grandparents, right, that kind of go back to the beginning of the story. I mean, these incredible people, and I hadn't talked with them for years. I was frankly embarrassed, and, and I didn't want to bother them with my problems, right? They're in their 70s. Like, the last thing they yeah. want to do is hear about their grandson, their world. I was, you know, my brother and I were their world. Hmm. The last thing they want to hear is about how, like, I've completely burned my life to the ground, you know, so early anyway. I reached. I picked up the three thousand pound phone, and I called them, and I said, "Like, I need help. I am on, you know, I am a methadone. I am this, I am that, everything." And my grandfather said, "I'll never forget it." He said, "Meth." He said, "Their houses are blowing up around here because they're cooking meth. You are on that?" And I said, "No, no, it's different, <laughs> Grandpa. <laughs> um, yeah. It's different." So, um, but yeah, they drove down the next day, and and then and then they picked me up and went to rehab. And then we went down to South Florida. So we, they brought me down there for detox. So I did a seven day, I did seven day detox down there. And then I came back to North Carolina. You know I mean? I wasn't going to go to rehab. I had no resources to go to rehab. And at that time, I mean, they were it wasn't, you know, w- the way it is now where you yeah, can just get plugged totally in different. and do different stuff. Um, so I was kind of like what it was like for the end. Um, and then i didn't even get sober after that though (laughs) as bad as that is um my grandparents came buddy the cops were looking for me again Mm. my grandparents were down at my parents place for a bit and they fed it they were calling me all the time fedex you got a parcel you got a package you got a package you got to pick up and and stuff um and i was like dude nobody's sending me a package like enough with the games i know i'm not getting a secured package that i gotta sign for but that's they're trying they tried that trick they tried jobs yeah, tried all this stuff to kind of catch me and I was living on my brother's floor, no driver's license, no car, not, no, you know, I mean, I wasn't working nothing. So it was, I was a, I guess a hard fellow to find. I don't know. <laughs> my grandparents came to like, we're heading back to Canada. Do you want to go with us? And I was like, not really. No. I mean, my life's here. I mean, I thought that at the time I'm like, yeah. now looking back, I'm like, what life was that? But I went with a man and I came up here and I was I got a job. I was doing a heck of a lot better than I was, man. I cut out all the drugs, but I was drinking beer every day. Yeah. I was drinking beer every day. Um, I mean, every single day smoking cigarettes, you know, that whole jazz. I was working my job. Um, I was living with them, but to come off the me- oh, I, actually, I actually wasn't drinking every day. It took a couple months before I got into drinking because I was coming off that methadone still.
0: Yeah.
1: I took like three months. I lost about 60 pounds. I didn't sleep through a full night in probably three months, maybe four months. I couldn't eat. I was all messed up. um, So they had to, they had to, um you know, just kind of be patient with me. And then I got this job and I was drinking and then uh, that was all right. So then I wanted to go back and visit my folks and this girl, right. We had reconnected, right. It's always a girl. And, um and my brother and stuff in North Carolina, when I got off the plane, I was arrested. I was arrested and charged with six counts of drug trafficking. And, um, I knew something was up and that's a whole nother long story, but I knew something was up. I just didn't know what, and yeah. anything would be that serious. And that happened because I sold drugs, narcotics. That's what they call the policing world, narcotics to an yeah. undercover police officer years prior. Oh wow! And they were looking for me for that long. So a buddy of mine had, um, had introduced me to this police officer. And yeah, I mean, that's the rest is history, right? So I'm booked in, this was like the big turning point, right? Because I was mentioned I was drinking and everything. My life was better, but it was still shit, yeah. honestly.
0: And you didn't even really and, remember uh, at, this. This was something was a thing of the past. So this kind of came back to haunt you when you least expected it, in other words, which is probably, number one, quite surprising. And then, number two, you're like, dude, like, what's going on?
1: Yeah. Well, I was like, yeah. I mean, they had my mug shot. And come off the plane there and I'm just like, oh man, like this, like yeah. this is bad, right? It's, it's not a good look. Yeah. So yeah, I had no idea. I had no idea what it was about. And then um, I just remember sitting on the cop car. I remember they have that, they have that drive-by lane at every airport that you yeah. you drive around, you pick people up, can't necessarily stop. And I remember I'm up on the cop car and they're patting me down, legs spread, handcuffs are going on and I'm just um, looking out of the corner of my eye, right? Not really looking for anything, but I'm just like thinking to myself, how do I, you know, this is, man, I just can't catch a break type deal. And um, I see this, this girlfriend, ex-girlfriend driving by and she's got a smile ear to ear, man. And I'm just like, it just kind of all hit me, man. I I can get emotional at this point because this was like the time, everything, everything changed. And um, I was just like, dude, I can't live like this anymore. Like everybody's depending on me to like be there and do And I just let fucking, I let people down yeah. all the time with, with, with my bullshit behavior and this addiction. And, um, yeah. So that was the day, man, January 11th, 2010, buddy, where I was sitting there and handcuffs, and I knew this was going to be a long journey and a long battle, but I kind of made a, I did, I made a commitment then and there that like, the, 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 the plan small was over. Like this crap was dead. But I mean, I was, even after I had that dialogue, I'm like, dude, you don't even like know how to pay bills. <laughs> like, I mean, don't get too far ahead of yourself here with like making changes because, you know, you're headed to the County jail here in, in, in a couple minutes, yeah. but um, it, it changed something for me, man. It really did. You know? And those were like the two, the moment I woke up on my brother's floor. And it was never really after a rock bottom, you know, like, I think a lot of people are like, oh, I got to wait for rock bottom. And it's like, no, I mean, get like figure it out now before you end up in some of these yeah. situations. You know, yeah. so I from that story, I ended up doing a year in prison in the U.S. Um, I had to plead guilty to all the felonies, you know, and I got some felonies on my record. And that was a plea deal. Basically, I was because um, I was never a U.S. citizen. I had a green card and I was a, a citizen of a Canadian citizen. So the agreement would be that after I finished my time, I would be deported. So then ICE picked me up. Immigration and Customs Enforcement picked me up. I spent about three months traveling from jail to jail to jail to jail to jail. Ended up at Atlanta International Airport. The van drove me right to the back of the airplane. No shoelaces. Everything I owned in this world was the size of a shoebox, and it wasn't cash. It was just letters and mail mail. And, um, they put me on the plane, buddy, and I was sent back a one way ticket to Canada. And that's like really when my life started over, man.
0: Wow. Um, I have a question for you about the methadone. Um, do you think that in your opinion, based on your experience, but then also based on the work that you do, the other, you know, folks that you talk to, um, do you think methadone, Serves a positive purpose, or is it something that just enables folks to continue down that path that is negative, negatively affecting their lives?
1: Yeah, I mean, great question. Definitely, people have have mixed views. Yeah, I think for me personally, it saved my life. You know, I mean, it saved my life. It, it provided a little bit of structure. It provided, even though it was hard for me to come up with that twelve bucks a day. I had to work hard for it and like whether I was learning how to get sober or not I learned you know what it was like to like work for something and not get a handout and be be creative I mean it was tough like I missed days and I forgot my lockbox days and I would throw it up in the parking lot and go without and get you know terribly ill and lose jobs because I just couldn't keep it together Um I mean I think for me it really saved my life but I I do know the slippery slope of people um, to where it can, you know, it could potentially go the other way. And, and like I said, man, I didn't know about the pills when I got on them. I didn't know about the heroin when I got on it. And I sure as hell didn't know about the methadone (laughs) when I got on it. So I don't think awareness is a bad thing. I also, I mean, the clinic I went to, they tried to do treatment, but like they would say, you have to come to the counseling sessions, shit. But I just never did i just bullshit you know just say no yeah yeah i I have to work or and i was selling cars in here at one little spot there too i used to work at michael jordan nissan man in north carolina you know (laughs) for (laughs) and so i was working there and um that really picked up sort of my addiction too right because that's cash money you know decent money for a guy with my skill set you know so but Yeah. yeah i mean i think it can you know, it, it's, I think it's different for each people, each person, but you know, I was happy and I made that decision like, yo, know, the methadone, I got to get off of it and I got to get off of it now. And I went into the clinic and I told them I want off yeah. because I can't keep driving every day. And some people will get take homes. I never did because I was doing other substances too. So I never had clean samples and I just want to get off of it because I couldn't keep it all together. And, yeah. um, they told me that's yeah, going to take 10 months. And I said, I don't have 10 months.
0: 10 and months that's to get off I, of it.
1: Well, yeah, you, you, their suggestion is to go down like two and a half milligrams every two weeks or something. You know, I'm sure Got things it. might have changed yeah. since then. But yeah, for a taper, right? I mean, yeah. you can shut it down whenever you want, but yeah, that, the was their withdrawals- that was
0: their suggestion. In other words, a slow process in order to um, minimize yeah, the withdrawals and effects and stuff. Yeah, man. Yeah, that's crazy, yeah. man. Um, yeah. So let's, let's kind of transition in um, to what life is like today for you. Man. You've obviously, you've obviously, uh, I mean, uh, quite, quite the uh, uh, gnarly story to say the least. And like we started off, I think I, when I introduced you, Brad, like a family man, now you have children of your own. Um You're, you know, you're, you're doing some great work in, uh, in the recovery community. Um, dude, just give us a little, little look and a little peek into that, into that life today versus what it used to be like.
1: Yeah. Well, thank goodness. It's not like it was, man. Cause I couldn't yeah. keep that up any longer. Um, but no, once I got sent back here, right, it was really, it kind of solidified my future, right? So I got a lifetime ban from the U.S. Um, for that. And it was kind of like, it was the best thing that ever happened in my life. You know, for once I knew where I stood. I knew where I stood, <laughs> man. I just, and I, yeah. you know, I knew where i was you know it was no more on the fence it was no and i had that year in jail man and that year in jail really just freaking inspired me man Mm. it inspired me in a few different ways it inspired me in a way that this is not how i want my life to be because this sucks
0: yeah
1: really bad you know for somebody with anxiety and high anxiety like dude that place is crazy Mm. it's madness man you know um, and I also was able to spend time to work on myself. I read self-help books, you know, I mean, every day I was hammering a new book, my my mom would send in books and I would, I would connect with the older folks, the older boys and we play yeah. chess and we, you know, I would just try to soak everything up, man, you know, soak everything up and try to learn from other people. I went to 12 step groups, I went to went to celebrate recovery groups and Everything that was available, college courses, whatever. I didn't need any of that. I didn't need any of it, but I want to get plugged in. I wanted to be, a, I wanted to be useful. Yeah. Um. So that really helped me. I mean, I figured if I could figure this out, you know, I could figure out other stuff. So can, I got back I, home man. I always wanted to be,
0: yeah, can, go ahead. I just, I just want to point one thing out real quick, man, before you go on, like, because I think this is really important, especially for someone out there listening who's struggling themselves, or maybe even more importantly for a family member who's really trying um, to help someone, a son, um, a, a spouse, some someone that they love is that when you take a look back on, on what you've shared so far um, you know, your parents were very supportive. Your grandparents were very supportive. You had other people um, who, who wanted to help you. Um, but you, what you just said is when you were locked up, you wanted it. You were the one, and obviously, I mean, and I take that too. You didn't have a choice at the time, right? So, I mean, I'm taking that into consideration. But there's the the point is, is that you wanted to help. You wanted to go for it. You dove in and went to the meetings. It was because you wanted to. You genuinely wanted to change and wanted wanted something new for your life, and that was the only motivating factor that ultimately. Worked and ends up working for most, if not all people. And so I just feel, you know, like my heart goes out to. We get a lot of emails and questions and um, conversations about, well, you know, I have so and so struggling. What can I do? And it's such a tough question because there's, you can have all the resources in the world, but if somebody doesn't want the help, it's, it's really meaningless in a sense. And, um, so anyways, I don't know where I'm going with that. I don't necessarily have a question for it, but I just want to point that out. And I think one thing we can do, and, and maybe you can respond to this, is if we do have someone who's struggling, one thing we can do is we can love them. We we have to have boundaries, obviously, but we can love them. We can We can present them with help when they ask for it, if they're ready. But it's such a tough situation, man. So I don't know if you have a response to that or if you want to keep going totally, totally cool either way.
1: Yeah, no, I mean... Yeah. I mean, that's so true. Like, I think people can, I think you can get started for your kids and for your job and for everything, but I don't think you can stay because this thing gets hard to do. And those external motivational things. I mean, if we break it down to something like, like exercise, like if you don't bring it home to yourself, if it doesn't eventually come home home to you, I think it just, it's hard to keep at it, you know? So, and I think for people, if you have someone struggling, you need to get help. I know nobody wants to hear that. Yeah, Or some people don't. But like so my true. mom, my mom went to therapy throughout all of this stuff. And that's what helped, I think, you know, just conversations over the years helped her kind of stay um, level headed with it all. Right. Because as a parent, you dive in there, man, and you're emotionally invested in this relationship. You need a third party that is not necessarily attached to it like that to kind of bring in a different perspective but i mean they do make fellowship groups and you can go to therapy to then you can talk with people about you know what's the best way and you get what you got to do is just get some support so that you feel like when you're doing the hard work of setting boundaries and and the and the person who's struggling is just i mean putting it all on you that you're doing the right thing and you have somebody else who can say like hey you know Yeah. And that's the right thing to do, you know, and whether it sucks and feels uncomfortable, you know, I think that would might be helpful, but I love all that stuff you said. I mean, yeah, no, at that point. Yeah. I was was stuck.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No. And I love, I love the, um, the recommendation for that. Like you have to understand if you have a loved one, you need to get help yourself too. Like there's things that, that, you know, that we, we just don't know if we're not in that kind of world. And so, um, I, I, 100% 100% agree. There's all kinds of groups and stuff. I'm sure um, Sober Motivation has resources. I know Sober Guy has resources. So there's lots of stuff out there for anyone yeah. listening if you if you want to reach out. Um, hey, where do you think the sober movement's going? <laughs> I know it's kind of a random question right now, but um, it just feels like if we go back, we're, we're a couple years off from each other on, on when we got sober. Mine was 2013. There wasn't a lot of options like there is today, especially so, uh, it, through media and social media. Um, nobody was talking about this stuff like they are today. Um, and so I I've, I really do believe there is a whole new, it's a whole new wave. I mean, there's it, how many podcasts new ones starting every day and people talking about this stuff. W- what's your take on like where this whole movement's headed? And sober is cool, man. <laughs>
1: I, no, I mean it, it is true yeah i mean there's a lot more stuff available today i think you know i think the whole, whole like sober thing alcohol free thing i think a lot of people are waking up to the damaging effects of alcohol specifically yeah i mean obviously there's other substances fentanyl and stuff that are you know making the news the the, the thing that's that i see in the landscape and see after i after I got back up here, I went back to school. So I graduated school as a addiction counselor and I worked at this uh, program here for six years. Um, and what I started to see towards the end of it was the fentanyl creeping in, right? You're losing teenagers. They're they're overdosing and dying on McDonald's washrooms. And that's when I personally stepped away from it. You know, these kids yeah. I had got to know for six months, you get the call right from their folks. And I mean, it just hit you like a ton of bricks. That was never yeah. a thing. You know, when I was out there, like people would get sick and, and, and you'd have, you'd have stuff, but you'd see them again. Yeah. You know, yep. you'd see them again. It wasn't, you could get a, a shoebox
0: full of Percocets and not really worry about swallowing a fentanyl pill where now you, you couldn't, I mean, yeah. you couldn't pay me to, to do j- just because of that pure risk. Yeah. And you're, you're so right. That risk was not there. Um, you know, just not, not that long ago. Yeah.
1: yeah and, and it's a, what some people I think are still confused about, and I don't know Shane, how they are, but there's, these are not people that are um, drug addicts and I'm not a huge fan of the word drug addicts or, or whatever, but just to, for, for it all to make sense, right? These are people who are just experimenting, at least in my community. These are just young people who this might be their first experimentation with the substance. And, um, you know, it's, it's tragedy. It's tragedy, but to answer your question, too, man, I mean, I see a lot more awareness, you know, I might kind of wrap it all up there as I see a lot more awareness coming out um, about alcohol specifically and obviously about all of the damaging effects of all of this other stuff. You know, so I see a lot more people making like healthy decisions about like, I want to be healthier. I want to be as productive as I can. I just don't want to feel like garbage on Saturday and Sunday and Monday anymore. I want to be better. So I think there's that side of people who are also joining the movement and that's amplifying it. Like people feel like they have a voice. They have a place now, you know, because when I got sober, I mean, there, I never knew anybody, but I'm sure there were people who were just like, nah, I'll just go without it. But most people or all the people I knew is like, yo, I burned my life to the ground. I either do this or I end up burning my life to the ground again. You know, it wasn't really. Like like what I'm seeing now, people are, you know, yeah. And people are like, I wouldn't say they're, you know, like a lot of people are like gray area drinking. Like it's, they're headed there. I think they're probably headed towards it being more of a problem than it is. I mean, this stuff's progressive. The first drink I had, it didn't do what it did to me at the end. The first pill I had, it it was progressive. Right. So I think for most of us, that's the thing, but I mean, I love to see everybody kind of sharing their own stories, their own journeys, their own ways of living their best life. I mean, to me at the end of the day, sobriety is, is living my best life. And I know to do, to do, to do that or for that to even be available. Like I just can't be using stuff, man, because, um, I always want more, man. (laughs) It's never enough. One (laughs) or two or three or under it's never enough. Once that obsession gets going, man. Yeah. It's it's a, it's a
0: monster. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, before, before we wrap up, we just got a couple of minutes. Tell us a little bit more about sober motivation. Like where, like what, um, you know, how can folks get involved? Can they can they reach out if they want to? Um, and how, how did you? You said you started with one follower. You think it was your wife, which I love, by the way, because I think my wife was my first follower, too. Of course, we got supportive <laughs> ladies, which is awesome. Um, but how did how did it grow? You know, you, you, you've you really grown it into just such a purposeful platform that's helping a lot of people and bringing so much awareness. Uh, just tell us a little bit about a little, little more about it.
1: Yeah, man, it was whole. It was weird how I got involved with Instagram too. I used to have this guy live with me, right? Because early on in my entrepreneurial journey, dude, I wasn't making income yeah. or much. So I rented out this room upstairs in my place, and then I ended up renting out my basement. And let me tell you, dude, huge disaster! <laughs> Don't do it. This one lady had beer cans, dude, stacked up to the ceiling. Like this whole area was beer cans, and I was like, no oh way. my gosh! Oh, wow. But um, good people, good people, but it was a lot. Yeah. So I had this guy, and he was um. He was scrolling on his phone on the couch. And I'm like, dude, you spend like way too much time on that phone. So what are you looking at all the time? He's like, it's Instagram. I'm like, okay. I never heard of it at the time. This was like, I don't know, six years ago, was it? Yeah, Time flies, dude. But yeah, around that time. And so I got on Instagram man, and I started sharing my own personal story. That's where it all kind of started. But then after a while, I was like, yo, like I've shared my story. Like I can only do it for so long. Yeah getting old i'm getting tired of hearing it so i can't imagine what other people are thinking or feeling yeah that's when i had the idea of sharing other people's stories sharing other people's stories and like at first like i'll be honest with you dude it was a small platform so nobody was you know too interested right and like being vulnerable and sharing their story what's the point couple hundred people you know their their own profiles were bigger so they're like i'll just share it so it was hard to get stories man but i had a few people who had an interest man and then um We started to build, man, slowly but surely, and then Good Morning America got a hold of me one day, and I'm like, oh, like I'm just nervous, dude. I'm just a wreck. I'm like, oh, what, like they want me to go on the show? Like I, I'm not built for TV, man. Um, (laughs) Too, too nervous, right? I'm sure I could do it if I had to, but at that time, like I wasn't really too sure of everything, so um yeah they wanted to run a story man about sharing stories and featuring some of the stories and stuff and yeah they they posted it all up and everything man and we you know we had a little influx of people maybe 20, 30, 000 people in a wow. day and then then the new york times picked up a story um and wanted to share about sort of the movement this is kind of when everything was picking up and a few other people reached out and there's a few other opportunities um and things just grew, man. We uh, got connected with some really cool people, you know, some celebrities never hurt to kind of get the word out there about stuff. Yeah. Um, and it just slowly built, man. I've just been, I've been posting like one or two stories and a couple memes like every day for six years. I mean, it's, you know, cause I get a lot of messages, Shane, right? Like, Oh, excuse me. How do you get it? How do you do it? How do you do it? And it's like, dude, I've been, I've been yeah. doing it every day for I have some help. Um, but for the most part, like, your boy's been doing it every day for six years, and um, you know, I think what you brought, what you mentioned before, brings everything full circle. Is I ultimately don't want anybody to feel like they're alone in this, like I once was. You know, if I can put a message out there, um, or other people's stuff out there that somebody can plug into twenty four seven, um, to help them feel like they're not alone and that they belong somewhere and that their story's valid and their journey's valid, we wa- we win. Yeah. You know, we went on that. And so that's been kind of the the thing, right? So I had to figure out how to incorporate other people's stories, but build trust with other people and, you know, stuff to, to share their journeys. And it's just been free. I mean, it's just been crazy, man. It's yeah. been crazy. Incredible.
0: Yeah. I, I love it, man. And I love, uh, I love following on, uh, on Instagram. It's at sober motivation. Um, and we'll be sure to put any links today in the show notes So uh, they're easy for you to find if just in case you forget at sober motivation, I don't know how you could do that, but, um, last question for you. And then we're going to wrap up. Um, what do you say to someone listening right now? Um, they're struggling with alcohol or they're struggling with some sort of substance, um, they they want it they want to quit. They just don't really know where to start.
1: Yeah. The million dollar question. Look, this is this is what helps me and it still helps me to today, not necessarily with not using or drinking, because I don't really I don't get the desire to do that, but you gotta move your feet. So people message me, how do I get sober? I think that's the wrong question. I sobered up a hundred times. How do how am I gonna stay sober? That's the question. And you got to move your feet to find that answer. So I I think too many of us try to think our way out of situations. I'll just will my way through it. I'll just outthink myself or I'll just outthink that next craving or that next trigger. I'll just figure it all out. Look, my experience is this thing's going to wreck you 99.9% of the time. If you try to do it yourself, you need to reach out to somebody else. Connect with somebody else that's been on the journey and just be honest with them become vulnerable, build community and share with other people who have been through it. And if you don't have access to that, jump on Instagram, dude. I'll chop it up with you. Yeah. I'll 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 hang out with you for a bit and and talk with you or I'll connect you with other people who will talk with you. But I tried to do this stuff on my own, man, and and, and every time, dude, I was I just banged my head against the wall because I I couldn't do it. So I think, you know, like ask the right question. If you're messaging people, how do they stay sober? What do you do to stay sober? Do they go to fellowship groups? Do they go to church? Do they, who are they connected with? You know, who are you hanging out with, man? I mean, so many things, Shane. I mean, it, 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 there's a lot of stuff, but yeah, I mean, I think that's. You know, get connected with people. But I mean, that's a hard thing to do. I get it. You know, I was struggling the other day, man, not with drinking or drugging, but I was struggling with just mental health stuff, dude. And I, I was like, I was out walking, man. And I'm thinking, dude, I need to talk with somebody. And I was telling, and I've been doing this for a long time, dude. I mean, I'm a counselor. I've been working with people in recovery. I mean, I should be, it should be no problem for me to ask for help. And I was, I was stuck, dude. And I wasn't wanting to ask for help. I was like, no, I'm not talking to my wife. I'm not talking to so-and-so. I'm not calling anybody. I'm just going to will my way through this. And then like a a minute later, I'm like, dude, this is a terrible idea. It doesn't work. (laughs) And I picked up the phone. I actually got on Instagram, man. And I had my my buddy on there that I've connected with on Instagram. I say, dude, can I call you? And I don't really know this guy. I say, can I? Or I said, hey, can you call me? And he called me. and We chopped it up for 30 minutes on my walk. I told my wife. You know, I'm struggling with stress, anxiety, and it's just second guessing everything. And it's, you know, it just handcuffs me and I'm having a hard time moving forward. And, um, yeah, it was just like that, you know, and that changed everything, dude. And now oh, we're yeah. here recording a show and like, I'm, you know, I'm just feeling good. So it's like, yeah. you got to get over that, um, that idea of, that we've got to figure it out. And you just got to get outside of yourself, man. And if you're spiritual, higher power, God, whatever it is, like you do your thing there. I mean, you, you, you know what, you know, you know what you need to do and how to connect. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah, dude. I, I love that you shared that. I mean, after 13 years, um, uh, you know, going through and all the work you do, um, you still point out that we all have our days. We're, we're not perfect. Like we're going to have a shitty day at some point. And the biggest thing, Um, That you could do is just to reach out to somebody just talk about it. We don't have to have all the answers. We don't have to have it's not it might not be fixed right in that moment, but just communicating that um, instead of sitting in it and saying I got this I got this I got this which I know I can tend to do as well. Um, man, the relief in that is huge. So, so thanks for sharing that. I know that's going to speak to somebody out there listening yeah. today. Um, dude, Brad, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. Uh, really enjoyed this chat and, um, yeah, anything else you want to, you want to follow up with, uh, before we, uh, before we wrap it up?
1: Yeah. One more thing too. Cause I told my wife too, that I was struggling and I had to re- read this response because <laughs> we've been together for years now and I never, I never heard this, but this actually, a guy like me, this helped me. I don't know if this would be helpful for everybody, but um she said, what kind of reaction would you like? A listening, patient ear, advice and perspective, empathy, or something else? And I was like, Wow. <laughs> I never expected that to ha- it's some for her to respond that way to like yeah. how what kind of reaction would I would I like from it? I was like at first I was like, what do you mean? You should know what kind of reaction. Then I was like, no, she shouldn't know. I, and I was just like, I just needed someone to listen, you know? Well, to me too,
0: that that sounds like to your point earlier, when I asked you about like, what should a family member do if someone's struggling or whatever, um, Mm -hmm. the, the, the spouse or the family member understanding and getting some help I, I would almost bet money that, and I don't know your wife, but I would bet she's probably had some help in in that sense herself, just to be able to respond to you like that. You know what I'm saying? Like that, that's, that's a, that's a pretty, yeah. um, that's a pretty smart response. <laughs> I don't know how else to put it, you know, in wow.
1: Yeah. It blew me away, but yeah, yeah. yeah, that's it. I just wanted to share that, man. I thought that was cool. And yeah, for people who are struggling, like maybe they just need someone to listen. You know, maybe that, yeah. that, that's all, I, I, my whole story, if you, if I didn't talk too fast and you're able to connect the dots, I never felt like I was heard. Yeah. So really when I'm reaching out for help, that's, that's really 92% of the time what I'm looking yeah. for, but thank you Shane uh, so much for the opportunity, man. I really appreciate it. Awesome, man.
0: Share the podcast with a friend. You can connect us on Instagram at that sober guy podcast. Uh, You can follow uh, Brad on IG at Sober Motivation. Love you guys. Thanks for tuning in today. Peace, love, and respect, and keep your blood clean.